Welcome back to Pure Ballina, Ballina Fringe Festival's podcast series in conjunction with Ballina Community Radio BCRFM. My name is Anne-Marie Flynn and every day this week during Ballina Fringe Festival in association with the Ice House, we're releasing a new episode of Pure Ballina talking to people engaged in the arts here in the town throughout North Mayo and beyond. Today we're delighted to welcome both a special guest presenter and a special guest. Our interviewer today is Evelyn Nikonila, an award-winning broadcaster and journalist who has spent over 20 years working in news, current affairs and entertainment, and has produced both radio and television documentaries for Radio Nagaeltakta, TG Cahar, RTE and Sky News Ireland. Evelyn was born and brought up in the Connemara Gaeltacht, but now happily resides with us here in Ballina. Evelyn will be chatting to Mayo-based documentary maker Gillian Marsh, who has enjoyed a highly successful career in television spanning over 20 years. In 1997, Gillian established G Marsh TV and since then the company has grown to become one of Ireland's leading production companies, specialising in factual and observational documentary making and capturing the extraordinary in ordinary rural lives. Gillian has directed and produced series and documentaries for RTE including Seahorseman, Vets on Call, Five Star, Living the Wildlife and The Funeral Director featuring David McGowan who also features in our festival programme this year. Gillian's latest work, a documentary with artist Sean Hillen, has just won this year's Irish Film Institute International Festival Audience Award for Best Feature and will be shown on RTE in the coming weeks. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation between two impressive and engaging women who have both succeeded in creating thriving careers in the arts and media from right here in the beautiful west of Ireland. Please subscribe to Pure Ballina wherever you get your podcasts and if you like what you hear, we'd love if you could leave us a review. Join us tomorrow for more Pure Ballina as part of Ballina Fringe Festival 2020. Welcome, I'm Evelyn Yechmila and this is Pure Ballina, the podcast. In the 90s, very few TV production companies worked outside of Dublin. Working remotely was not a thing, but Gillian Marsh did both, making over 200 programmes from the remote Bohans Barn in northwest Mayo. Gillian Marsh, how are you? Very good. I'm delighted it's not raining. Yeah, for once. (laughs) Beautiful morning. Thank you for inviting us to your home. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, this is my only employees at the moment left are these few ponies. So every morning our horses, so I just bring them out now and um, then get into the office and get, get to work. Good girls. Yeah, Mum will go out now. Beautiful day. I've got the covers on because it's so wet. You've got to keep some sort of a... The rain is just gets to them in the long run, so... They've always got to have a raincoat on them down here. So they have. But they're, they're great. It's great sometimes. I suppose I'm the only, the most rural production company in the country, I'd say. And uh, you could go, if any of the guys who work with me ride, we'd take off and we could go for three hours on the horses and never even see a car. And a great time to think and just try and think of ideas and do things. Nice way to have a production meeting, I'd say. So you could say that you're living under the the shadows of Nathan? 
Yes, you know, the one good thing is I always know when the rain's coming. You'll know it like 20 minutes before it arrives. You can see it on its way into Hit Nathan and the minute it gets near, it just lashes down. I mean, I grew up in the East Coast and we get, from doing Living the Wildlife and all the nature shows, like we get, um, I think it's 2,500 millimetres of rain over here, while if you're in Kildare in Dublin, it was like just 1,500, and you really notice the difference. Good job. That is happiness. Yeah, yeah, she's delighted. She's just <laughs> running away. Yeah, just to get out and about. Like. But, um, and is this your morning routine? Yeah, I come down, you know, and I let them out. But I'm in the office on my own now with COVID and all that. So I'm kind of here a lot on my own. When I first set up, uh, I first moved to Crossmanina in, what, 1996. And when I first set up the um, the office, yeah, a lot of crews, you were doing the productions and the crew would come down and stay here. We were working on different programmes and vets and calls. So you'd have the um, shooting director living here. And then um, a good few series I did, the editors came down and stayed here. One girl moved from London to Crossmanina and I think she got the fright of her life. She hadn't quite banked on what it was going to be like, you know. Well, I'm going to bring people back a little because Vets on Call made you an overnight success. But of course, everyone in the business knows there's no such thing, really. How many years of hard slog was there up to that point? Well, I had, um, I mean, I had been in Ireland, back in Ireland a good few years because when, when I qualified, there was no jobs. Um, like when I left college, there was no jobs in Ireland at the time. And... Um, it was 1983 or four, I think. And so I left, um, I went over to London. I think I had 80 quid. And I went to London and I was trying to find a job. But of course, I organised a meeting with the BBC. So I was delighted with myself. And the next minute, that weekend, the first weekend, I was um, staying with my brother in this sort of squat, like it was a dreadful place. And uh, anyway, um, every time you left, you had to take all your gear with you. So I ended up, I was to have an interview on the Monday, but on the weekend was when Maggie Thatcher, when they bombed Brighton. And of course he rang up with an Irish accent and it just wasn't the right time and the right place to be looking for a job in the BBC. He more, he politely told me that, you know, well, look, there's a lot happening at the moment. I won't be able to see you for a few weeks. And uh, so anyway, I, um, I, my mum, my parents at the time had moved. Dad had um been offered a job in the Far East so they were living in Hong Kong and my mum was in London on her way back and I didn't want to kind of tell her any of the worries or anything so I brought her out to the airport um, to say goodbye she was going back and she said what are you going to do now that I had in the interview and I said oh well I'll look around and she was waiting in a queue and I said just hang on a second mum so I ran over to the standby desk and my friend well, boyfriend at the time was living in Chicago, in Milwaukee, north of Chicago. So uh, I bought a ticket for, I think it was £70, and I meant I had a tenner left, to Chicago. And um, so when my mum was getting going through the boarding gate, she said, what are you going to do? And I said, don't worry, I'm going to Chicago. And she goes, oh God, I'm not going to tell your father. And so I hopped on a plane. And so I worked in America for a long time. I worked with uh, in an audiovisual company making 54 projector shows. Like we'd go with John Deere tractors and we'd tour the country and we'd do 
big shows in Kansas City and then you'd be on to Phoenix and um, it was all video and I kind of I kind of dragged my way into that job because you know it was all photography and I hadn't done very much photography but um I managed to kind of wing it and the fellow who was in the dark room kind of told me what to do. So I wing, winged it and I, I worked with the, this company touring and doing different programs for John Deere and General Electric. And uh, then I got a, a job with General Electric and the corporate America seemed like a really exciting kind of place to be. So I worked there for a few years um, on uh, promoting MRI equipment and CAT scanners and doing videos for... Um, you know, mammography equipment and things. Wow, I did not know that's how it all began. <laughs> yeah, no, I was. I mean, I it was like, I kind of, they, I think in G, they all thought we were about 25, or, but I was only 20, 21 at the time. And uh, so then um worked there for a few years, but I never wanted to, I, went, I wanted to travel and I didn't want to be there going, gee, I left Ireland 20 years ago and here I am again. So I am. Um, I decided I was going to go traveling and my boyfriend was waiting for a green card so he he'd stay there and uh, so I took off to Australia and uh, worked as a jillaroo for a while like a cowgirl you know on the horse farm and uh, that was great fun you know we'd have sent out to 500 acres just to find a few horses and they used to kind of put me under all these things because I was like uh, you know, Irish, they didn't, they didn't really, weren't used to having a Sheila out with them kind of thing. My brother had been a manager on the farm, so that's kind of how I got the job at the beginning. But it was the best fun, like he was, you just go gallop and cross miles and miles and miles of, of fields and herding up mares and things. But th I had to knuckle down and get a real job then. So I moved into Sydney and worked for a corporate um, video company. Great fun, like making corporate videos for Range Rover and um, a lot of big companies. And the rain arrives. Rain arrives. <laughs> I, I shouldn't have said it earlier that it wasn't raining. Do you want to go inside to the office? <gasps> Come in. It really can rain properly in the rest of Ireland. Oh. Do you want a cup of tea? That'd be lovely, we'll thank put, you. We'll put kettle on anyway and we'll get the fire on. That's what people used to laugh when they came down. Or if you ring people who are in an office in London and you're going, oh, we're just sitting here with the fire on. And one girl that was working with me, they were like, you have a fireplace in your office? And yeah, we come in, we set the fire, we make a cup of tea and then we all get, um, get working. And when we were busy, like in the noughties, we'd have ed editors and, and a good few production assistants and different people in each part of the house. Now it's only me at the moment, which is bad. Vets on call was huge at the time. Huge. As in everyone in the country was talking about it. Did you realise that then? No, I mean, when I finally got vets on call, I mean, basically, just to go back shortly, I, like, I got married and I had just finished John Hume documentary. I had um, finished the Written in Stone. I'd been working my first years of marriage down here. I'd leave on a Monday morning at four or five in the morning and I'd be back at five in the evening on a Friday. And uh, then Eamon broke his hand and he ended up on um, the, sh the John Hume shoot with me. He was the gopher best boy or whatever they call him so um but when I first moved here then I had 
um, Isabel and I had a few children quite quickly. I had four kids under four. And uh, so there was one young lad that uh, Eamon used to meet on a TV test and he was doing communications. And every day a year he'd say, um, I can go to show my project to Gillian or whatever. So he'd show it to me and I'd tell him whatever. And he'd drop me off a bottle of brandy. I never drank brandy. And I'm pregnant all the time. So anyway, one day he'd finished college and he came in and said, I'll type up your ideas if you tell them. Because, you know, I, you've got all these ideas and you've no time. So Alan Gillespie came in, the poor fellow, with me with, I think, three toddlers and a newborn. And uh, I'm sitting there. And of course, he, people, toddlers always go towards people who aren't used to kids. So he was like sitting there typing and petrified, going, oh, God, what have I got myself into? And uh, so we had six or eight ideas typed up. And I went up. I said, OK, I'll go to RT. So I went up to RT and I came out with five of them commissioned. So they were Tanland. So I suddenly came back and went, Jesus, Al, we've got to get going. We've got five programs. And Townlands was a great series. You could make little programs about different things. So um, we made those, and I used um, a little office beside the library in Cross Malina and got different crew in, and we, we got it all set up. So that kind of proved, OK, you could have a rural production company. So I put in the idea for Vets on Call. And in those days when you were getting it, you'd have, to, you'd have a pan of three commissioning editors, and they'd pull you apart, you know, and they're like... Like, this is a great story, Vets on Call. It was before veterinary programmes had really started in, RT, in, in the UK or in British Isles. Unfortunately, we didn't get to keep them going for as long as I'd like. But uh, it, um, so they kind of were putting me through it. Like, how, you, you know, how can you prove that this is going to happen? I'm going, well, I live this life. Like, I'm married to the vet. I live the life. So I know what I can get and what I don't get. And I know, I know how it goes. So I'd convinced Eamon and... Paul McDermott's partner to do it because they wanted to kind of capture, you know, the stories and lives of older farmers that were, you know, disappearing and the way people were. So they kind of, well, we'd sort of convinced Paul because it was an archive type of programme. To most people in this North Mayo community, Eamon Connor and Paul McDermott are just known simply as the vet. At least one of them is always there, always on call, day or night, 365 days a year. So I got commissioned and went out the first day and I was out with Paul uh, filming out by uh, Bell Mullet and everybody was so suspicious. The word was going around that the vet was going around with a, a man from Revenue or a woman from Revenue with a camera and they were counting how many cows you had and everything. So, of course, there was mayhem. And uh, so we spent our time... Jerry Hoban, um, a friend of mine, was editing and he was shooting director. So she, he came out because I couldn't go out with all the babies at home. And uh, so he went out with them and we filmed Vets on Call. And I suppose it was really real. And that's what's nice about it compared to kind of all the organized reality programs now, you know, that are, you know, kind of set up. I mean, Vets on Call was very real because you'd arrive in the farm in the middle of the night and a black cow in a black shed and a black night with the rain, you know, is as real as you get. And, and there was no setup before anybody got there. So when we put it, when it went out on air, I was, I must say, I was petrified because, like, you didn't know what way it would go. Like any program, you don't know how it's going to go down. And we started hitting figures the same as uh, The Late Late Show. 
and it was brilliant. Like, I mean, everybody was was really like kind of couldn't believe it. Artie were delighted, but it was um, I mean, it was tough in ways on the two vets, but a lot of we got a good few abusive calls. Yeah, it was strange. Like, and one woman, you know, a dog had seen and its mate dead. And she was like, well, what the hell are you, you, you know, doing letting the dog see his mate dead? And I'm going, well, actually, a dog will be better off if he knows his mate is dead, you know. And uh, then she started to go, as for that woman, and I said, what woman? That wife, you know, with the four children, she said, that marriage will never last. And I said, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what's wrong with that marriage? And he goes, well, she can't be expected to answer the phone, look after those children and everything. That marriage will never last. And I'm going, well, she married into a way of life, so she seems to be coping pretty well uh, in my eyes, you know. And she goes, mark my word, she'll be separated within the year. <laughs> I always wondered when she saw Vets and called four and I was still there. She you are talking about yourself. She was talking about you, yeah, I should say. Yeah. And people <laughs> said, why didn't you say it to her? And I'm going, I just didn't. I just, just, you know, I was there as a producer, not as a wife. So I just think it's so funny she said that. Because actually, what run through your mind? How did you do it all? So it was tough. Like, there was, it was... Uh, like Eamon never really was around, you know, only like in bits and bobs during spring. I think Zoe hadn't managed to see Zoe until she was a few months old because um, and he'd come in to me in the hospital. I never stayed very long in the maternity ward because there was nobody visiting you. If you're not from down here, you didn't have anybody around. So, you know, he'd be herring in at like 10 o'clock between a calving and give me whatever I needed and then herring off again. So it was kind of a, it was a, Looking back at it, we probably were a bit naive. We should have, you know, you know, it was a very busy way of life. And then I got all the productions going. But I, I was doing them at home um, in some ways, like when they'd ring RT, you know, of course, you know, children, the minute you're on an important phone call, they're after you. So I'd go running into the bathroom or I'd go in the downstairs loo. Next minute, they'd be clattering the door, and I'm talking to the commissioning editor in RTE, and I'd be saying, oh, you know, um, he's going, where are you? You outside a crash or somewhere? And I said, oh, I came into the bank. I'm just in Ballina in the bank. Oh, yeah, I am. I'm near a crash. And meanwhile, it'd be my own five kids outside the door going, mom, mom. And uh, you couldn't, in those days, you couldn't pretend you were working, you know, you had children around and things like that, because while now with COVID, everybody knows everybody's at home and they're working, but it was a different time. Now it's commended. Yeah, yeah, it is really, you know. I mean, I was always hearing around kind of behind doors, talking on the phone and then back. And, uh, you know, it's funny. One my son said recently, he's now, what, 19? He went, I always thought you were having an affair with Ray. And I said, why? Because every time you talk to him, you suck out behind the door. And I thought, no. Ray is the commissioning editor, or <laughs> was, an RT. <laughs> He was. It was only because I'd have, they'd all be so no noisy and I'd have to go. And he hadn't children or a wife at the time. So he'd be like, what are you doing with all these children and the noise? And if they thought you were doing that, they mightn't have thought you were able to get the productions done, you know. But Benson Hall really took took the um, the nation. I think a lot of people loved it. A lot of friends in Dublin said, oh, we learned, our children learned all about the birds and the bees and animals through West Benson Hall. Yeah, it was it was huge, and I suppose the person at home loved the series, and of course you managed to get four series, which in TV land is is big. I know you would have liked to have continued on longer, but that's pretty big. They wouldn't have known you were behind it, but I was working in the industry at the time, albeit news, and your name was a bit of a buzzword at the time. 
it was a buzzword for innovation. You were one of the first people we knew who were working outside of Dublin, who was succeeding outside of Dublin, who was doing things differently and succeeding. Did you know that then? No, no, I'd never even told people I was even on the radar or on the map. No, I wouldn't have. We were just kind of, you know, battling on. And um, I mean, I was cutting it up an egg in Dublin, so we were up and down. But I wouldn't have taught anybody that we'd be on any radar. You know the way in RT, you don't know really how good things are going down. And they have these commission, these editorial meetings, which are quite tough on each other. I always feel sorry for the commissioning editors in them because they seem to pull everybody's idea apart, you know. And that was a new genre of television, an observational documentary. And that's accredited to you now. How did that make you feel? <laughs> I wouldn't have ever thought that. I mean, observational documentary, and it's something that it's hard to, you know, get the shooting director to see. The st- you have to listen to a lot of stuff. And like with vets, you never knew if that calving was going to be brilliant. So for three hours of television, we were shooting... Two, three hundred, two hundred hours of film, you know. So you, the ratio is just off the Richter scale. So a lot of people, you know, try and I think you don't get real observational documentary if you don't let reality play itself out. And now, unfortunately, everything is okay. Today we're going to get you here, and you're going to be with your daughter there, and you're going to say this and do that. Okay, go ahead. And that's what they call reality. But in my eyes, that's not reality. I mean, that's a lot of constructed reality. You're very genuine and real about what you want to do and your work is honest do you think there's a place for you in the current way that we make television I hope so (laughs) I really do I think um, it's going to be harder for me to get the type of programs off the ground I mean I've so many different ideas that I'd like to do but it's going to be harder um well, I'm just going to have to learn how to format them, actually, you know, because I don't know if it's going to really bend for me. You know, I've been lucky in a lot of my commissions. Uh, like RT, were waiting for the funeral director for a number of years. But, I mean, you know, people weren't queuing up to be on that programme. You had to be dead to be on that. The story of pioneering funeral director David McGowan. Why do the Irish grieve better than anybody else? The wake, the spending time with the deceased of his compelling journey from the west of Ireland to North America. There is another thing about you. You do not pick easy subjects. I mean, don't work with kids, don't work with animals. You've done both in the last 10 years. And then a programme about death. Yeah, no, I've always, I've always picked the more difficult ones, really. I suppose I have to be passionate about the idea. I have to like it. And I wanted to make a programme just about death that people knew what was going to happen. My dad had dropped dead um, the Christmas of 2009. He'd come down in the snow for Christmas and uh, on Christmas Day, Stephen's Day felt bad and that night he had an instant heart attack and he dropped dead and I, it was about three in the morning and mum and I, we went and had a cup of tea and amen, what do you do? You know, let's have a cup of tea and uh, then mum and I went out and sat with dad for a few hours because I didn't want to wake the funeral director so I um, then googled what to do with the dead man in your house because I didn't know if I needed the police and it told me how to do my tax returns and I realised nobody actually knows what you're meant to do when somebody drops dead in your house especially if they're already dead and you don't need an ambulance and things so uh, 
I thought I'm, I said I'm going to make a program that will give people a full idea of what you know what goes on. So you have you, when somebody dies, and um, so I kind of set out to do that. But uh, David also had a lot on his plate, so it was hard to it's hard to get the people in because it wasn't my position to go straight up to the bereaved family and say, "Can we follow you?" And so I had to depend on David to give us an introduction, and then a lot of people might say yes but then others would say oh Paddy was a private man he wouldn't have liked that so then you'd lose them so eventually we had the fantastic people that let us you know follow them and we met Dougie and that was that was brilliant but um, that was a very scary one when that went out because you don't know how people are going to take a program on death and if they didn't like it I could have ruined David McGann's business I had all these people who their families are in it. You know, there was so many people that I was responsible for. I just sat there like frozen and I'm not really on Twitter. And then friends started texting, you're going, look, watch Twitter, see what's happening. And uh, I couldn't even remember my thing, so I had to open a new Twitter account in the middle of it and uh, see what was going on. But um, I, I couldn't believe it was so, so, you know, so popular. And people like David got 600 texts People saying thank you and thank you, thank you for taking the fear out of death. I got emails and texts from people I don't know all around the place saying my mum just got diagnosed with cancer the week before we watched it and thank you for taking the fear out of death. It really helped us. So I like to, I think if you make a programme that makes a difference is what I like to do. Like I always reckon and say to everybody that's working with me, if if our programme isn't talked about in the pubs or in work, or people said, oh, did you see Vets on Call last night? Or did you see the funeral director? Then we haven't done our job right, you know. I love the way that you allow a story to tell itself. You're not dictating the story, which is what a lot of television these days does. I love that. Do you view yourself as an artist? A creator? Or a businesswoman who produces something that somebody wants to buy? Mm. I just, I think I just view myself as lucky. I'm lucky that I can get into people's lives and do something I enjoy and, you know, tell stories. I I never really, um, I, I mean, I've never really thought myself, I probably wouldn't be the best businesswoman. I put, uh, you know, the accountants um, would always say to me, like, I'll put everything into the production. And... Um, and it's not easy to make, you know, a lot of money. If I was a lot more, if I wasn't so driven by the story, I'd be a lot shrewder and maybe have made a lot more money. Um, but I end up putting it all in, like, because most of my programs, I mean, for um funeral director, you should be making them in six months. But the nature of the subjects, you know, stretches over like a year in a lot of ways. Uh, so I don't kind of, I don't see myself as anything, anything special, really. I just see myself as, you know, anybody else's a production manager or producer just you know trucking away and try and get the jobs in and out and make the story I want to make I've never really entered entered um, competi- or festivals or anything because I was always busy and then you were always tight for cash and they can get pricey when you get into that festival thing which I've discovered I first time ever with COVID I put in the last two documentaries into different festivals and you have to get these special DCPs done for cinemas. And we were to have the funeral director. And tomorrow is Saturday being broadcast in, in the cinema in Dublin. And of course, COVID put it all to a close. So 
um, that didn't happen. But we did win the um, the Irish Film Institute International Festival for tomorrow Saturday. I'm not surprised. I've only seen the trailer, but I would love to see the whole programme. It, it just looks fascinating. And, uh, the exhibition includes the work of Sean Hillen, who uh, joins me now. Among other things, Sean designed an album cover recently for the Super Furry Animals. And I thought, you know, I kind of thought it was going to be fine, I think. I'm at a funny point in my career where I have a back catalogue. I think I've made good pictures. And I've failed to make a living at it. Got to the point of the sheriff at the door and, you know, the electricity going out. Where will people see it now? It'll be on RT now. The programme should be on RT at the end of the, mo- end of the like, November, December time. And if not January, so it's called tomorrow. Tomorrow is Saturday, and uh, it turned out it like there's a, 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 an example of a program that you think you don't know how it's going to end up in the long run. Like I've sold an idea to tell a story about a collage artist who's fifty-seven or eight now, and um, found out he was had Asperger's at 53 or 4. I remember him saying to me, you know, I just thought I was a weird little fucker. But he said, now I realise why I think like that. And uh, he was um, a fascinating man. Like when you walked into his house the very first day, I mean, every time you turned, you knocked something over. I felt like the clumsiest git, but you couldn't get around the house. So I thought the one thing I left there going, we'd tell his story through his boxes of of stuff he's hoarding like that's the way his whole life is in that house so let's just declutter him and tell the story he'll open up every box and we'll find out his life that way and that makes it you know different and and it'll be real don't give too much away now it's going to be on soon yeah so it worked out it's a lovely story because it's a story of an artist a story of somebody dealing with Asperger's. It's a story of somebody who grew up in the Troubles. And a lot of people, that's where Greta, the editor again, she said, I knew nothing about the Troubles. Like, she's too young, you know? She said, I didn't know anything about internment or or how his life was and how it's affected him because he's got post-traumatic stress, being the 10, 12, 15-year-old, you know, growing up in Uri in the, uh, in the 70s. You know, so it's 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 a bit of history as well as art. Do you think if you had stayed working in Dublin or worked in London that you would be more celebrated and lauded? <laughs> um, maybe. I, I mean, I if I'd stayed in Dublin or in London, I would have probably, and if I'd set up a company in Dublin, then I probably would have had a big company by now because then it's easier to get employees than get them to come down to the west of Ireland. So I wouldn't have been, you know, I wouldn't have stayed small because, you know, you could have had, like we've had three or four productions going at a time here, but um, it would have been easier when you're up there, you'd have a lot more staff and kept going and you probably, you see, you'd get into the commissioning editors, you'd be in RT, like I get up there once a year maybe, you know, and every time you go in you see, all the different people from different companies and they're all in having their chats and coffee and I go, oh God, I should be in here every day, you know, talking to these people because then you know what they're looking for and you know what they're at but I kind of, I, I feel like I come out of a big mossy green hole every now and then and I go, oh hi guys, what are you looking for? I've got four ideas and then I get them and I go scurry back to a little green forest hole and make a 
make the documentary, you know. Gillian, how would you describe Gillian Marsh? Oh, you better, better asking my husband or somebody about that. Um, I wouldn't uh, be the most confident person. And I'd say that goes against me sometimes where I, you know, in business, I, you know, should just go up there and be balshy and say it. Like there's some people I, I hire and they're very confident. They come in and you go, Christ, they don't know what they're doing. And uh, and I, you know, a lot of times I'll have probably got somebody to direct something while I should have directed myself. I think when women have kids and have babies, I think, you know, you're, you've had your children, you've got them, they're all toddlers, and you're running around, and maybe it's sleep deprivation everything, but I do think you lose your confidence. I think if I had, you know, if I had not had kids and was living in Dublin, and I would have a big enough company, because I would have probably had time to just think of myself and believe in myself, but I think when I had all the kids, um, you know, I'd be filming and working and moving around and everything, but one thing I did notice is I'd have less and less confidence, you know, and then, that, but I think that goes hand in hand. Any woman who's had children, I think, would say, like, sometime they come out of the huggies and the pampers and go, Jesus, I'm me again, you know, they realize that they actually can do something and they're not, they're just changing nappies. But, um, so I'd say, yeah, I wouldn't be the most confident, but I enjoy what I do, and, and I really enjoy when other people enjoy it, you know. I mean, we'll all, I just hope I'll keep on making programs, and and I don't think I have a big ego. I wouldn't think I'm a big ego person. I deal with a good few people who have have the egos. They go hand in hand in our business, but, um, you know, just kind of keep make do and try and get, get it over the line, get the job made, and then think of another one. What is your greatest extravagance? Um... My biz- biggest extravagance. Well, if I had the money, I would be travel. Like, you know, we've always kind of tried to save up for years. And as a family, when the kids were small, we'd take off to weird places. Like after dad died, I just said, oh, come on, we're going away because I don't want to be saying we never did things. So we took off with the kids um, to Costa Rica. Well, we were going to go to Panama, but we thought that was a bit irresponsible with such young children. And uh, we did go into Panama on the time and all these American tourists were taking photos of us with, you know, five children under the age of eight traveling around Costa Rica and in our van. And uh, and we were going across a, a big border with the bridge with loads of holes on it and uh, to cross from Costa Rica into Panama. And all the people were, you know, trying to get across and... Uh, and Eamon was the worst one because he hates heights, so he couldn't go. The kids were flying across the bridge. These Americans were taking pictures of us, thinking, my God, do you meet the cute little Irish family who are traveling over here? And uh, so we always kind of went to weird places and just rode horses around mountains. And oh, in one place we stayed, and they, hadn't, um, they were building a place for people to stay. And they took our booking, and we got there, but they hadn't built it. So we ended up all staying in this, like, kind of, like myself and the girls were put in one sort of what was going to be a chalet, but it was full of ants. And they were running over us all evening. And Eamon and them got a better one. It was about much higher than ours. It was kind of on stilts, this platform, no edges on it. So he's hanging on to the kids. But we had the best holidays, you know. We kind of probably lived like backpackers. But um, it was a great experience. And we went, did the same in Africa for another time. 
and we went to another one in America. So we got three really lovely holidays. That would be my big extravagance, travel. What is your favourite programme on television at the moment? <laughs> my own. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I love it. No, leave it there. <laughs> what is your favourite tipple? We don't get to drink that much. Um, the white wine I'd like. And otherwise I'd be, um, you know, just a, a shandy or something. But yeah, I'd probably drink white wine. What is your favourite time of day? Mornings. Yeah, I'm a bit of an early bird, like I'll wake up early and, um, you know, if I have the the time and the weather, like I'd get a lot done in the mornings and I love, you know, just going out on a horse or something in the mornings. And um, and I like kind of trying to have things done in the evening so you can relax a bit. But needless to say, I never get, I never get to do that between everybody at home. You end up kind of busy. Your favourite child? Well, <laughs> five of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I have. It's Teddy, Ethan, and Robin. One big long name. Yeah, that's often brought up. I'm going, no, but you're my favourite Robin. Yeah, you're my favourite. <laughs> they're all old enough now, though, that they're, um, I mean, they've all, in August, I had, what, 21, 20, 19, 18 year old, and then a 15 year old. So I've one, I've the one week or two weeks of them all been, you know, the steps of the stairs. But it's good. They get on well. They fight and they get on well. They're all, you know, close enough. I hope you don't mind me saying this. I just think you're an amazing woman. <laughs> I'm no different than you, you know. I mean, we're all kind of just working and doing our bits and pieces, you know. I wouldn't think I'm any different than, than anybody, really. Do you ever think, though, in this country, we celebrate poetry, we celebrate artists, but we do not celebrate television production and it's the one I think art form that we allow into our lives every single day why do you think that is I do agree with you wholeheartedly I, like I don't understand why why if they don't have the big one or why somebody like Jacobs don't you know sponsor a big tv award because it'd be a fantastic way to get coverage you know, like get the big Johnson and Johnson to the, the Johnson and Johnson Television Award, and and get judged by, like uh, you can have audience judges as well, but get it just judged as content. What I found in the IFTAs, um, sometimes you'd be, you know, in a you'd you know have four programs that were nominated, but they're nominated because you know that had fifty crew on it, and those fifty crew had you know all their friends, so everybody votes. And the one that they know Johnny worked on or Mary worked on or whatever. Yeah. And I, I don't know why people look, because it takes as much um, to make a TV documentary as it, you know, like in, in fact, making a documentary versus making a drama. I think drama, you have the script. You know exactly who's going to do this. You can get away with somebody walking down a lane for nearly a minute with music because they're thinking of something. Like in documentary, you're looking at, you know, 20 shots a minute and trying to find that amount of shots that go into every minute of, of a program. You know, I would say, like, but tomorrow is Saturday. I would, I must, I would wonder how many edits there are. It's got, like, 46 pieces of music within it. And, uh, you know, there's so many shots. Like, you would, probably a third of the shots would make a full feature. You know, so it's kind of um, a feature drama. You wouldn't need half of the shots. So I don't think documentaries given half the credit it should be given really I feel like you're only halfway 
I feel like you're restless. I couldn't go outside Ireland, really, when you have five young kids and, you know, your husband's working full time and I'm working. So you didn't really have, I couldn't just take off, you know, to London to go. And you have to do a lot of meeting and greeting to get commissions. So I just didn't have the time. So I've never really gone, you know, to the UK or further afield yet. But yet, and I'm still sure I can keep making programmes till I'm 89 or 90 anyway. Gillian, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's good to chat to you.